you Tennessee fans, make sure you hug those Alabama necks this morning. Oh, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. You get out and you make the visitors feel welcome. Uh, to come forward to receive the offering at this time. Again, we want to welcome you. And if you're visiting with us this morning, this is your first time, I encourage you to find a visitor's card located in the back of the pew and fill it out and stick it in the offering plate. Or there's a tear out in the bulletin that you can stick in the offering plate as well. Uh, two quick announcements. Ms. Myrna said that they, the tapes for the Christmas program, the practice, are in the tape room and available for you. And also we encourage you to pray for the Fletcher family. Vivian, Fletch, Vivian Fletcher's father passed away, and I don't know any of the details, but be in prayer for them. Um, like I said, it is good to be in the house of the Lord today. The preacher, pray for him. He is in Memphis, Tennessee today, 
And uh, I think he's holding a revival meeting at Graceland. We pray for him. He's out of town. But uh, I'm glad you're here anyway, whether he is or not. But let's bless the offering this morning and you obey God in your giving. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day and we thank you for the opportunity to give. And I pray you'd bless the giver. Thank you, God, for what you have done for us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
I sensed his presence and
Savior gave and he gave his life as a final rose. Now I cherish that tree.
a thing wrong with that. Amen. Glory. Well, it is good to be here this morning. This is home. <laughs> this is home. I go and preach in other places, and uh, I've been taking some of the teenagers with me when I go, and it, it doesn't take long after we leave the building and get back in the vehicle before they say, that's not temple. And I say, no, no, son, it's not temple. I promise you that. Uh, what a special blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord today. If you have your Bible with you this morning, open it up to the book of Micah. I know some of you won't find that till I'm already through this morning. But the book of Micah, chapter 6. If you know where Jonah is, it's somewhere around there. I spent an hour this morning locating it, and then I marked it in my Bible so I could find it. The book of Micah. There are some passages of Scripture in God's Word that just exude joy. And they are what I like to call happy passages. <laughs> Micah chapter 6 is not one of those passages. I, I have no expectations this morning of any aisle running or pew jumping. But nevertheless, it is truth. And truth is what we desperately need. Micah chapter 6. Uh, this week God has impressed this passage of Scripture on my heart until it has become a part of me, and I have been moved by it. And this morning, I want to share with you my heart. Micah chapter 6, and we're just going to read verse 2. The prophet says, Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. This morning, for the next few minutes that I have, I want to speak to you on this thought. Are you a controversial Christian? Are you a controversial Christian? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I need your help this morning. And God, I ask that you'll put your hand upon me and you'll help me. And Lord, in my ability, I cannot convey the message that you want conveyed. Only your Holy Spirit can do that. And God, I pray that you will come down and you will touch me and touch your people. Speak to us from your word, Lord, and we'll thank you and praise you for what you're going to do. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Living in the time that we do, we are no strangers to controversy. From the White House to the Church House, we live in a world that is seemingly filled with controversy. And when we think of a controversy, we think of a situation in which one person has a complaint or an issue with someone else. And I believe you'd agree with me this morning that the last place or the last picture a Christian wants to see themselves in is a picture in which God has a controversy with them. We like to think that when our name comes up in conversation in heaven, everything that's said is agreeable. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not always the case. In Micah chapter 6, the prophet paints a picture in which the holy God has a controversy or a complaint against his own people. Now, the prophet Micah is an interesting character. And if you begin to study a little bit about his life, you'll see that he lived in the same time and ministered in the same area as the great prophet Isaiah. They were very close together. But if you compare and contrast the two men, you'll see that they're very different. You see, Isaiah lived in the big city of Jerusalem. <laughs> but Micah hailed from the less famous small town of Morasheth. How many of you ever heard of Morasheth? Raise your hand. I didn't think so. Morasheth was located about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. Isaiah was more of the big church preacher. He was the kind of fellow that would fill an auditorium and people would come to hear the great prophet Isaiah speak. But when you study Micah, you get the picture more of a street preacher. <laughs> more of the fellow who just kind of got out among the people and, and told them like it was. Isaiah was the prophet to the crowned monarch and Micah was the prophet to the common man. Isaiah was the big city preacher and Micah was the old country preacher. 
Someone has said of Micah that he had Amos's passion for justice and Hosea's heart for love. He was truly a prophet of common people. His message was for the everyday person on the street, the everyday believer, if you will. His message was both practical and pointed. And what he had to say to Israel is very important to us today. And this morning, I want us to look at the words of this old country prophet. And I want each one of us to ask ourselves a question. Am I a controversial Christian? Does the holy God have an issue with me? If God were to come down and were to talk directly to me or present himself to me the way he did to Israel, would he have a controversy with me? Is everything all right between myself and my Lord? Am I a controversial Christian? There are three things from this text this morning that I want to share with you from my heart. And I give them to you briefly. The first thing that I want you to notice this morning is the controversy that God portrays with His people. Now there is something about the drama of a courtroom. From Perry Mason to Matlock to Court TV. For a long time, people have found themselves fascinated with the procedures of a trial. Well, in Micah chapter 6, this passage of Scripture takes on the feeling of a courtroom. In verse 2 of our text, look at what it says. God is speaking and He says, Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. One author that I read depicted this verse as a courtroom scene in which the holy God has summoned his people to trial. He's brought his own people to trial. And at the trial, God has summoned the mountains and the foundations of the earth to come down and be the jury. And in this passage of Scripture, this jury that God has called is already seen the evidence. They have witnessed both how God has been good to His people and the mountains and the foundations have also witnessed how God's people have rebelled against Him. So they've already seen the facts. And in this verse, it is as if God is beginning to present His closing arguments, if you will, against His people. In verse 2, God tells this jury of His own creation that He has a controversy with His own people. Now, there are a couple of things that have caused this. There's a couple of circumstances that have led up to God's controversy with His people. I want you to notice a couple of things that have caused this controversy. The first reason that God has brought His people to trial is because of the corruption of His people. Now, one of the things that fuels the ministry of Micah is the fact that in the land he lives in and among the people he ministers to, there is an overwhelming corruption. He sees this and it bothers him. He looks at their lives and his ministry and work is fueled by the fact that he sees a great corruption in the land. In verse 7 of Micah chapter 1, the prophet talks about graven images and idols that are rampant throughout the land. And that shows us that the people of God had turned away from Him. They had ceased worshiping the one true God and had begun to revert to idol worship. And this turning away from the Lord had created what it always creates, corruption. You see, when we turn our back on God and we walk away from His precepts and His principles, the only result is corruption. It fills the land and the people who turn their back on God. Now, Micah is fueled by this corruption. And in verse 2 of chapter 2, listen to how Micah describes the corruption. He says, And they covet fields and take them by violence, and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man in his house, even a man in his heritage. This corruption among the children of Israel had manifested itself in the form of greed and injustice. The people of God had become greedy. Uh, they had become corrupt and it had shown itself in their greed and injustice. Instead of the people of God being mindful, they had become materialistic. And instead of the people of God caring, they had become corrupt. 
You see, their turning away from God had resulted in their corruption. Someone has once said about the time we live in that there are a lot of people making a good living but living a poor life. Let me say that again. Someone has said about the time we live, there are a lot of people making a good living but living a poor life. I say this morning, that's a true statement. And it's also a testament to corruption. I say to you this morning, when our God becomes the almighty dollar or a bull market, friends, we have been corrupted. And when our young people and our kids want to grow up to be gangsters rather than godly, friends, we have become corrupted. And when we are fed the notion that the most important and vital thing we can provide for our children is a paycheck rather than a parent, friend, we have become corrupt. Uh, There is a corruption that fuels Micah's ministry. He is motivated and moved by what he sees in the lives of the people. But not only was God's controversy with his people Uh, because of the corruption of his people, but notice further that it was also because of the coldness of his people. Isaiah, who, as I said before, lived and ministered in the same time and basically to the same people as Micah did. Listen to what he said about Israel in in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 3. He said, Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Not only was there an overwhelming corruption that had seeded itself in the hearts of God's people, but they had become cold toward the fact that they were corrupt. They had become accustomed and comfortable with their sinful condition. The people of God had become apathetic. There was an apathy in their hearts. They would not even take the time, as Isaiah says, to consider where they were at. They were so busy in their life and in their pursuit of of the Israel dream that they would not even stop to consider that they were away from the Holy God. Someone painted an all-too-telling graffiti in big, bold black letters on the side of a university library. It said this, Apathy rules. I say to you this morning, one of the reasons that we as the people of God and as the church of Jesus Christ have lost our power and our effectiveness in the lost world around us is because apathy rules in the church house. People have become comfortable and accustomed to their seat on Sunday morning and their life on Monday morning. They have become apathetic and cold. The people of God have become cold toward the work of the Spirit of God. I read an advertisement that was placed in a newspaper by Kansas Baptist Church, and it was an advertisement of their worship services. And it said this, Worship in comfort. (laughs) You can worship in our latest climate-controlled, air-conditioned sanctuary. It is refrigerated cooling. The air is dehumidified, well-circulated, and changed every five minutes. And then the last line of the ad was the most telling one. It said this, Cool Sunday services. (laughs) I say to you this morning, there are many a church in our world that has become cold, and it's not the fault of the air conditioning unit. The people of God have iced over to the voice of God. We have become apathetic to His pulling and His towing in our life. We have turned a deaf ear to His voice. The question you and I have to ask ourselves this morning is, could God make this same case against us? If the Holy God were to bring our spiritual lives to trial, would the evidence mount up to a conviction? Could God have this same controversy with you and I? Were the Holy God to leave His throne in glory to bring us to trial, could He have the same complaint against us? That's the question you have to ask yourself this morning. Would God have a controversy with me? But notice something else. Notice not only the controversy that God portrays with His people, but notice secondly the challenge that God places to His people. Now as the scene begins to unfold in Micah's courtroom, God in verse 3 offers up a challenge to His people. But look at the last statement in verse 2. I want you to see this before we move on. 
The last statement in verse 2, look at what God says. At the end of the verse it says, And he will plead with Israel. That is a testament to God's character. Because I want you to understand something about the God we serve this morning. He never, ever, ever gives up on his own. God never writes somebody off as a lost case. Many times we'll say, no way, they're too far gone. God cannot change that life. But our God has never come to a point with one of his children that he's thrown his hands up and said, I give up, I quit. Our God is in a constant process of trying to woo back and draw back those who have walked away from him. You see, God's character is to plead with his people. God's character is to beg and, and, and do everything in his power to get them to return to that right relationship with him. Yet he will plead with Israel. I'm so glad this morning that my God pleads even now. I'm glad he's never given up on me and never walked away from me. God continues to plead with Israel. And in verse 3, this pleading takes on the form of a challenge. This is one of the most riveting verses I have ever seen. It is a moving picture if you'll see it in your mind. Look, look with me at verse 3. I want you to see what God says. I want you to notice a couple of things about the challenge. The first thing you have to understand about this challenge is that it is a challenge for God's people to reason. It is a challenge for God's people to reason. I, Isaiah said in one, chapter 1 and verse 18, Isaiah said that God says, Come now and let us reason together. And in Micah chapter 6, when we get to verse 3, again it's as if God is trying to get his people to stop and think about what you're doing with your life. And in verse 3, there's a challenge from God to get Israel to reason, to stop and think. Look at verse 3. Six. God says this, Oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. Oh, me. What a picture that is. If a relationship has gone sour, and working with young people, I see a lot of relationships go sour. Boys that are around for a certain number of months vanish like that. Girls who started visiting and I thought would be prospects vanish like that. And the dating pool, it recycles. So I have seen a lot of relationships in my day go sour. But when that happens, it is usually because one or more of the parties involved in that relationship have failed in some way. In verse 3, there is a sobering picture of the holy God leaving his throne in glory and coming down to prove his innocence before his own people. It is as if God has stepped out and came down to exonerate himself and to show Israel that it is not my fault. That's a sobering picture that God might have to make us see. God says, Israel, have I done something to you to make you rebel against me? Where is it that I made you tired of me? And then God makes a statement that can only be followed by silence. He says, testify against me. There's nothing that can be said after that. There's not a human being alive who can, in truth, rise up and offer a testimony against God. Now, I've heard people in my lifetime who have tried to blame the bitterness and the coldness of their heart on God, but that's a shallow argument. If you are not where you used to be spiritually, it is not God's fault. God has never, ever, ever pushed us away. God has never, ever, ever caused us to turn our back on Him. He's never done anything to cause us to walk away. The truth of the matter is, if you're away from God this morning, it's the fault of the sinner, not the Savior. God stands innocent before us in verse 3. If you're here this morning and you know that you're away from God. The Spirit of God has already begun to talk to you. If that's you this morning and you're away from Him, God wants to know why. If you've turned your back and you've walked away, the Holy God of Heaven questions you. Why have you walked away? 
Give me a reason why you've rebelled against me. Testify against me. God says to you, why have you turned from me? There's a challenge that God places to Israel. And the first part of that challenge, it was a challenge for his people to reason. But notice further, it was also a challenge for his people to remember. In verse 4, God continues to plead with Israel. And in doing so, God not only shows them that he had done nothing to cause them to turn away, but he goes on to show them exactly what it was he did do for them. You see, God is trying to get his people to remember. He blessed them with a memory for a reason. Now, some of his blessing is deplenishing. It's, it's going away slowly. Uh, but God is trying to get them to remember. I read a story about a 22-year-old law student at the University of Padua in Italy who put on an amazing demonstration of memory. He sat down and he listened to a recital of 36,000 words that were nothing more than gibberish. They were not connected in any way. And after the recital was done, the fellow stood and he repeated all 36,000 words from memory and then did it backwards. I read that and I thought, why? Why waste all that valuable space? I know that the storage capacity in my head is not that much. And I have no reason to go wasting all that room. Uh, the truth of the matter is there's some things this morning that just aren't worth remembering. But there are other things that you must never forget. God is drawing Israel to a place where they'll look back and remember what he'd done for them. Look at verse 4 at what God says. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and I redeemed thee out of the house of servants, and I sent before thee Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Now, if you'll allow a little bit of my simple translation, God says, Not only have I not done anything to cause you to walk away, but I have been a blessing to you. I've brought you from bondage to blessing. I've given you the greatest leadership this world has ever seen. Israel, I'm the greatest thing that's ever happened to you. Why have you walked away? And then in the next verse, he continues to remind them of things he had done for them. In verse 5, God continues to remind them how, how one time he took the would-be curse of a king and transformed it into a blessing. God reminds them of how he brought them from Shittim on the, on, the Can on the wilderness side of Jordan to the Canaan side of Jordan at Gilgal. God basically, what he does in this passage of Scripture is goes down a grace list of things that he had done for Israel. I say to you this morning, it would do us all some good to review the grace list of things God has done in our life. It'd do us some good this morning to stop for just a moment and remember what he's done for us. And as bad as some of our memories may be, it's not that hard for us to look back and remember a time when it was us in Egypt it's not that hard for many of us to remember when it was us who were living as nothing more but slaves in the fields of sin. Ah, oh, but then the great Redeemer came and swept us out of the mire and set us in the choir and changed our life forever. You see, it's not that hard for us to remember. And it's not that hard for us to look back in our life and remember when we stood at a Jordan River in our life, a, a complicated problem that we didn't know how to get across. Oh, but then God brought us from the wilderness side of that problem to the victory side of that problem. You see, God wanted his people to stop and reason and then remember what he had done for them. Child of God, if you're in this building this morning, God says to you, reason and remember. If you've walked away from him, if you've turned your back from his will and his work, God says, reason and remember. I believe, I believe Isaac Watts answered this challenge when he penned the words, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. I say this morning, church, it would do us all some good to do some introspection and some retrospection, to look back on the days when God lifted us out by his amazing grace. Why? Have you walked away from me? There is a controversy that God portrays with his people. And there is the challenge that God places to his people. But notice thirdly and finally this morning, the cure that God proposes for his people. Now, being a veteran of 
treatment in the medical field, I can say this. The medical profession would not be much of a profession if doctors only diagnosed and offered no cure. Now, imagine this with me, if you will. You call and you schedule your appointment at your doctor's office. You go and you get there on the appointed time. Three hours later, the nurse calls your name and you go back into the room. They stick you 700 times and stick a piece of wood down your throat. They take you into a room where you can hang meat and it would stay. It is 30 below. They tell you to take your clothes off except for your socks and your underwear and sit on that frosted metal table. So you do. And then if you're lucky, two and a half hours later, the doctor strolls in. And imagine it goes this way. He pulls his spectacles down and he says, Well, you have a terrible illness. Have a good day. Turns around and walks out the door. If you're anything like me, you're like, Hey, Doc. I appreciate that you know what's wrong with me. Now, what are we going to do about it? Doc, I need a cure. Don't just point out that I'm sick and not offer me any help. I'm glad to say this morning I serve a God who with painstaking accuracy can always point to the problem in my life. But I'm even more thankful that with that same hand of grace, He can point me to a cure. You see, God does not bring us to the point of conviction to leave us there. He brings us to the point of conviction to bring us out, to bring us to the point where we are forgiven. You see, our God brings us to the place where He can show us what's wrong, but He also offers a cure. God said, Israel, here is your problem. You've walked away from me. Here is the solution. I'm glad God is faithful to provide His sin-sick people with a divine cure. I want you to notice a couple of things about this cure this morning. I want you to notice, first of all, that we see the selflessness of this cure. We see the selflessness of this cure. Now, in verse 6 of this chapter, the whole direction of the chapter changes. It is as if the people have heard what God had to say. They've been listening and they've heard Him. And there's even a sense that they have been convicted by what God says. And what Micah does is he takes the feelings of all the people and he personifies it into one voice. And then in verse 6, God stops speaking and they begin to speak. And when they speak, their words reveal an attitude that is so typical of the people of God today. Look at verse 6 at what the people say. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before the high God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Verse 7, they continue, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, do you see what the people are doing here? They are digging and scrounging for a way to please God. They are searching in every corner of their life, in every stretch of their ability to please God. It's as if they said, all right, God, you got us. We've walked away from you. Now let us fix it. We feel your conviction. Now let us do something about it, God. Uh, they, They say, do we offer up sacrifices, Lord? Should we bring you young calves or thousands of rams or rivers of oil or maybe even, God, we can give our own children. We just want to do something, Lord, in our own ability to make right what we've wronged. And they stretch to the limits to try to please God. In verse 8, the prophet Micah, they asked us in a question, should we do this? Should we do this? And in verse 8, the prophet Micah answers their question. Look at the first thing he says. He hath showed thee, old man. It's as if Micah says, no, you know that's not what God wants from you. You see, the Israelites did what so many Christians do today. They tried to offer God something of their own to please Him. Uh, There are people that feel that in order to keep God happy and on the up and up, they better go to church. And in order to keep God appeased with their life, they might have to stick something in the offering plate. They feel that there is a good work that they must maintain if God is going to be pleased with them. 
And they dig and they scrounge within themselves trying to please God. But what Israel and what many believers today fail to realize is that you have nothing that you can offer God. What we have missed in America today and in in churches today is that it is not something you can give to God. Your best works at their most righteous are nothing but filthiness before God. Your best efforts behind the best intentions are nothing but filthiness before the holy God. So many times we fall on our face before God and we say, I promise God... I'm going to do better. Lord, I promise you this morning, I feel convicted by what you've said to me. And God, I promise you that I'm going to clean it up. And it's going to be better, Lord. What we fail to see is that our best efforts are not enough. Your best works are going to fall short before God. If you're here this morning and you're away from God, good news rings from Micah chapter 6. There is a cure. But what you must understand is that the cure does not involve your good intentions or your best efforts. God's not interested in what you can offer Him. The unfortunate truth is that our best efforts are not enough, but that's okay because our best efforts are not a part of the cure. God's cure is a selfless cure. God's cure is one that is strictly on His side. It's just like your salvation when you get saved. God does not expect you to bring anything on behalf of your redemption. You see, He does not expect that because it's an act and an operation of grace that does not change when you're a child of God. When we face that same problem of sin again, God does not require you to bring something on your behalf. He says, no, it's an operation of my grace. It is me and me alone. Truth of the matter is this morning, there is a cure, but it is a selfless cure. We must understand that it is not something we can do. But notice something else. Notice not only that we see the selflessness of this cure, but notice further that we see the submission of this cure. In verse 8, Micah goes on to remind the people exactly what it is God wanted from them. They knew already, but he tells them again. He says in verse 8, He hath showed the old man what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. In this verse, Micah tells the people that there are three things that God wants from them. He says requires, but it the word gives a sense of wanting that God is yearning for this from his people. The third thing that Micah says, I believe, is the key one. I believe the first two things that Micah gives are things that are direct results of the third thing. Micah says the third thing God requires of you is that you walk humbly with thy God. I say to you this morning, that is the key to pleasing God. Stay with me. If Israel, in a reverent and a respectful humility, would simply take God by the hand and let Him lead them, then they would be pleasing to God. Some of you Bible scholars are saying, Hang on now, young man. What about to do justly? Micah said that you had to do justly. And what about loving mercy? Micah said you had to love mercy. I say to you this morning that if you will reach out and take God's outstretched hand and begin to let Him be the leader in your life and in a humble walk of faith follow Him, you'll have no problem doing justly. And I say to you this morning, if you'll take God by the hand and simply in humility let Him control your life, you will become mercy's biggest fan. You'll cheer for mercy like you've never cheered before. Because when you're walking in the footsteps of the Savior, you really understand what mercy's all about. You see, all God wants is your submission. All God requires of you is that you come down and give up to Him. And in surrender, say, Lord, I want to walk with you. God, I want you to lead me. Child of God, this morning, no matter where you are in your spiritual life, 
All God wants from you is your complete submission. If you'll submit, he'll perform a good work in you. That's a promise. Submission is easier said than done. I read about a man who was installing a satellite dish on his roof, and he was about to put the last remaining wires in place, and he slipped and started to slide down the roof. And just before he fell off the house, he caught his hands on the gutter. And in panic, he looked up toward heaven and he said, Is there anybody up there that can help me? A voice came back and said, I can help you. What do I do? Let go and I'll catch you. The man waited for a minute and he said, Is there anybody else up there that can help me? Submission may not be what we want to hear, but it's the only cure God's offered. The challenge of Micah chapter 6 is clear. God wants you back at his side. He wants you to walk with him. This morning, I challenge you to be obedient to God. It's late, I know, and I'm sorry. But God says to the child of God, it's away today. Come back. Why have you walked away? Stand on our feet with every head bowed and every eye closed. Some musicians come begin to get placed softly, and we're not going to drag this out this morning, I promise. Too late for that, huh? But I believe that God's word was given today for a reason. I believe somebody here needed this. And as they begin to play softly, I'm going to pray. They're going to play through one verse, and somebody's going to sing. And when they get done singing that verse and that chorus, I'm going to pray we're going to be done. But I want to give you an opportunity this morning. If you're here and God has spoken to you, don't ignore him. If the Holy Spirit has gripped your heart this morning, Get out of your seat. Break that mold of being comfortable and complacent and come before him and in submission say, God, you have your will in my life. I'm not going to fight you anymore. If you'll do that, I promise you something. You'll learn how to live in victory. You'll return to that relationship with God. As they sing, you be obedient to God. They're going to sing this chorus, and many of you know this chorus. You sing it with them. But you be respectful of the voice of God today. You listen to what he has to say as they sing.